Last week, we saw the famous story of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob swindled a blessing that was supposed to be for his older twin Esau. He dressed up like Esau and put goat skins on his neck and on his arms to trick his father. And now he's on the run from Esau because Esau said, no problem. As soon as dad dies, I'll kill Jacob and then I'll get the blessing for myself. So Rebekah, who is Jacob's mother and really was the instigator of that whole scheme, although Jacob was not blameless, she says, you, you got to get out of here. You got to go to your uncle Laban's house in Haran, which you remember Haran was the place that Abraham first left when he came into the promised land. He left Ur, went to Haran, stayed there too long, and then when his father died, he came to the promised land. So there's an interesting reversal of the path that Abraham took that we will be tracing as we go through the story of Jacob. And it is the story of Jacob for a while here. We've been looking at Abraham mostly, then it was Isaac for a hot minute, now it's Jacob. And it's going to be Jacob until chapter 37 when we're going to start to focus on Joseph. And Joseph is the fourth major patriarch in the book of Genesis. And tonight, Jacob is going to encounter God for the first time. And he's going to begin a long journey of transformation. And I, I love the story of Jacob because it gives me hope. Because sometimes you hear these radical testimonies like, and then I never sinned again. Like, well, that didn't really work for me. Didn't really work for Jacob either. The Lord had to lead him over a long time to where he wanted him to be. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of Jacob's stubbornness. But this is really where it begins, where Jacob first encounters God and, and makes that first almost ignorant agreement to follow the Lord. He would have grown up with Isaac and known the stories of Abraham and everything, but this was his first personal encounter with God. And the lesson that Jacob learned here tonight is going to be the lesson that we want to try to learn when Jacob saw the Lord in the wilderness. And 2 Corinthians 4.18, you might want to write this in the margins. This sums up the message of, of this passage. Paul wrote, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Writer of Ecclesiastes might say, vanity. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the main message for us tonight, you guys, the spiritual is just as real as the physical. And we make a mistake when we elevate the physical above the spiritual. An encounter with that fact changed Jacob's life. When he, for the first time, realized that, it changed everything about him. And I hope it'll be an encouraging message for us. We're going to talk about angels tonight. It's going to be a lot of fun. But I also hope it's, it's uplifting for you and it reminds you to keep the priorities where they should be. So let's begin now. We're going to do verse 10 through 22, but we'll start with these first two verses. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So his mother has urged him to leave. His father has given him a blessing on purpose this time and sent him out. And he's leaving for Laban's house, partly to get away from Esau, but also partly to find a wife that is not one of those Canaanite women that were making life so bitter for Rebekah and Isaac. Now, it is a several hundred mile journey that Jacob is going to go on to get from Beersheba, by the southern tip of the Dead Sea, all the way up to Haran, which is almost north of the Mediterranean Sea, or at least the, the tip of it right there. But this is going to be about a 70-mile journey that we're going to look at tonight, from Beersheba up north to what would become known as Bethel by the end of this story. But for right now, it's called Luz. That was what they called it, Luz. But we're going to call it Bethel. And at this point, Based on the chronology, I talked about that some last time, Jacob is between 40 and 70 years old. So by biblical standards, he's still a strapping young lad, I guess you could say. But you've got to imagine here, Jacob is on this hundreds of miles journey. He's made 70 of these miles. And it doesn't say he was alone. And I'm inclined to think he probably wasn't because they were a wealthy family and he wasn't going secretly. But he certainly felt alone. And he certainly was facing the reality of who he was. Remember, Jacob's name, Yaakov, means heel catcher or deceiver. 
And he had certainly lived up to that name. And that identity had driven him into this wilderness here. We're going to see he's going to lay down on a stone to sleep. Not exactly the, the nicest pillow here. The Hebrew there, by the way, could also be not that he slept on the stone, but that he propped up the stone as a shield from the wind. I thought that was interesting. It doesn't change the story at all, but it's just interesting to think about that. Because I've always thought it was uncomfortable to sleep on a rock, but, you know, anyway. But consider how this would have felt. He's left behind his mom and his dad and his brother and his blessing. Jacob was the homebody, remember? Jacob was not the outdoorsman like Esau. And he's managed twice now to swindle the blessing. But how in the world is he supposed to get the blessing now? He's leaving it all behind. He tricked and schemed his way to getting what he wanted, and it didn't leave him anywhere except the wilderness. The wilderness in the Bible is a very common symbol of change or transition. That if you're going to go from being farther away from the Lord to closer with the Lord, you go to the wilderness. The children of Israel, when they left Egypt, they went into the wilderness. They were headed for the promised land, but they had to go through the wilderness first. Jesus went into the wilderness for his preparation before he went into his ministry. And there are other examples as well. And we see this now. That Jacob has blown up everything that he had back home. And now he's in the wilderness. And that is what life can be like sometimes. Where either something is done to you or you do something that completely alters the situation. And you can't go back to it anymore. You ever done that? Or has it ever been done to you? That happens. Sometimes it's a mixture of both. It's a lot harder, though, when it's your fault. <laughs> you know, the children of Israel were in the wilderness for a good reason. And Moses kept on getting frustrated with them. He's like, yeah, we're in the wilderness, but you're, you were slaves. And now we're on our way to the promised land. Calm down. This is a necessary transition to go through. But when it's your fault, and it's not a journey that you would have made if you'd had your druthers, it's hard. And you can start to lose heart. And I can imagine Jacob may have been losing heart at this point. Maybe it was finally hitting him. Like, oh boy, I've really done it now. I'm a scoundrel, I'm a heel catcher, I'm a cheat, and it finally caught up with me. Been living that way his whole life, and it finally caught up with him. And really the whole big story of Jacob's life is he's going to be broken of that cheating, swindling, scheming spirit. And this is just the first step that it, it's ruined his life and he realizes maybe something's got to happen. When we see ourselves for who we really are, when you understand what your name is, so to speak, like you understand not your, your name that people call you, but what your identity is, that can be a rough thing. I want to go find myself. Are you sure you want to find yourself? You might not like what you find. It reminds me of Psalm 63, verse 1, Jacob's situation here. Psalmist writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now it doesn't say that Jacob was in the desert as in he couldn't find any water here. There's not any civilization around, it seems. He's sleeping on a rock, remember? But you might say, wait a minute. I'm in the wilderness, but I'm not thirsty for God. Yes, you are. This is what Jacob didn't realize yet. That what he needed was to encounter God. And the thirst that his soul was craving and the, the things that he was scheming and trying to get and trying to satisfy himself with, he was looking for God the whole time. People do all sorts of things to fill what you call the God-shaped hole in your heart, right? You, you chase after things. You chase after drugs. You chase after money. You chase after women or men or whatever it is. And the whole time you were seeking God. And here's Jacob trying to figure out what he's done and what he needs is a visit from the Lord. He didn't know it yet, and neither do you, maybe. Maybe you can't understand why you go to church and you give your tithe and you do all the right things, but you just feel so dry and you just don't feel satisfied. I think what we all need in those cases is what Jacob found in verse 12, or really what found him. So he's sleeping on the rock. Let's read verses 12 through 15 now, okay? And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob sleeps and has a vision of a gateway between heaven and earth. That's pretty cool. The Hebrew word for ladder there is sulam. This is what, if you were in our inductive Bible study class, you remember a hapax legomenon. It's a Latin term that means only found once in the scriptures. So it can be difficult to know exactly how to translate that. It could be ladder. It could be stairway. It's something you go up and down. <laughs> so ladder works. Some people try to say, I don't know, how are the angels going up and down if it's a ladder? It's like, well, maybe it's a really big ladder. Or maybe it's a stairway. A very common idea I've seen put out there is he had an image of the, the steps like that would go up the ziggurats or the towers like the Tower of Babel that were built at the time because this is what was believed that you went up to the top of the tower and that's where you could encounter the gods and the gods would go up and down those stairs. So maybe Jacob had a vision of the real thing. But it, that's a little dicey because the word sulam is not the word for tower. So the idea is similar, I think that there were all these places where they thought they could find where the gods went up and down, but Jacob is going to see the real deal and realize that it's, it's not like the Tower of Babel where we're going to build a giant stairway to heaven and we're going to meet God there. It has to be an act of God's own initiative, right? If we want to encounter God, it's got to be God coming to us. The Lord does this a lot in the, in the Old Testament especially where he'll take what, a common misunderstanding and then he'll do the real deal. He'll say, you think that this God is going to provide for you, for your crops and everything. What you need is me. So you think you've got to build the Tower of Babel to have interaction with heaven. I'm already coming down. You don't need to build a special place for me. And it says that God stood over Jacob. That's the literal translation there. He stood over Jacob. In verse 13, he says it stood above it. The question is, what is the it that he's standing over? Is he standing over the ladder or the stairway at the top, or is he standing over Jacob, as in he's right there talking to him? I think both are cool. So pick which one you like. The language will allow for both. The point is that God is there, and God is speaking to him, and God is over him. And God renews the promise. This is a key section in Scripture. These verses here that you ought to underline, because this is when it, it is no longer the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, now we're going to get that famous Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The blessing has been given to him. The birthright has been given to him. But none of those things mean anything. It's the grace and sovereign choice of God, right? So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said very similar things to Abraham. He said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and all the rest. Isaac was in chapter 26. We just read that not long ago. And Jacob is right here in 28, verses 12 through 15. He gives him the blessing of land. This land on which you lie is going to be yours and your descendants. That's why it's called the promised land. You're going to have many descendants. You're going to have victory over your enemies. And you're going to have prosperity. And not only that, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That, as Paul reminds us, is, is a foreshadowing of the gospel. That through what I'm going to do through you and your son, Jesus, who Jacob didn't know yet, Every nation is going to be blessed through you. And we're experiencing that right now, aren't we? When you are in the wilderness, when, when you've messed up, and every lie that you were telling yourself about yourself is shown to be as nonsensical as it really is, what you need is not a fresh understanding of yourself. That's the problem. We understand ourselves and we see what we really are. What we need is a fresh view of God. You need to see the Lord who stands over you. Because Jacob's eyes no, are no longer down on himself, but they're up on the Lord who is above him. Especially God's omnipresence is what's important in this passage. That God is always with us, isn't he? That's so basic. That's like they're learning that over there in the children's ministry class. That God is everywhere and he's always with you. But as you get older and you go through some pain, that starts to mean something, doesn't it? That God is always with you. And that God's not going to abandon you and he's not going to give you up. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 20, at the end of the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you always, 
even to the end of the age. I like in Jude 24 where he says, The Lord is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the throne. So not only is God with you, but he's watching out for you. You're like the bowling ball that would have been a gutter ball, but the Lord is like, you know, the bumpers that are knocking you back into the middle. If we didn't have that, we'd all be in pretty bad shape, wouldn't we? The Lord is always with us. He's everywhere. He's not bound to the territory. This was a very common thing back then too. Jonah fell into that. Jonah thought, well, if I leave the promised land, God can't follow me. And then that's why when he's on the boat, what does Jonah say? I serve the Lord who made the earth and the sea. God's like, Jonah, you going to run from me, pal? I'm everywhere. And I'm the one responsible for you. And Jacob learns that now. And not only does he learn that, the Lord's like, I'm going to give you all these things. I'm going to bring you back safe. I'm going to bless you. So all the things that Jacob was worried and stressing about, God comes in and says, I've got this. I'm going to take care of those things. That's what's so great about being in the wilderness and having a fresh view of God. Elijah went into the wilderness and he had a fresh view of God. The children of Israel went into the wilderness and the first stop was where? Mount Sinai, where they had a view of God. Because your sanctification, Christian, your blessings, your life, it's not your burden to carry. Jesus' shoulders are strong enough to carry all of our burdens. And this is what the Lord is telling Jacob here. Even though Jacob, Jacob was a rascal. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was taking advantage of his blind father. And he was running away so that his brother didn't kill him. And the thing is, you read that story and you almost go, well, I kind of see Esau's point here. Like, I, I, it's maybe not good to kill him, Esau, but he at least, you know, deserves a whipping or two. <laughs> but the Lord comes in and says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm the same God that took care of Abraham and Isaac. And we've talked about it for the last couple of weeks, so I won't dive into it again. But Romans reminds us, why? Why did God pick Jacob? Because the Lord's like, it's, it's me, guys. It's not you. I'm going to choose the younger son because I can choose the younger son. The promise is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon me. And I think also there's an element where we're going to see Jacob respond positively to what you could say the advances or the, the outreach of the Lord, whereas we know that Esau was never going to get to that place. So maybe the Lord saw something in Jacob's heart. But although it's kind of hard to say that because the Lord is literally going to have to break Jacob <laughs> to get him to that place. And... Maybe you've had to be broken by the Lord before, and you walk with a limp after that. But this is just the beginning of that story. God's with him, and God says, I'm going to finish the work that I began in you. Just like Paul said to the Philippians, the Lord is able to complete the work that he began in you. Well, verses 16 and 17, I love. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. And I hope we learn some things and have some fun here too. Verses 16 and 17, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Love these verses. He says, God was here, and I didn't realize. Isn't that the story of our lives? God was there, and we did not know. There is a song, I think it might have been Hillsong several years ago, that the, the main line was, you were moving all the while. <laughs> like, oh, I thought God had abandoned me. And God's like, I'm working it out. I was there and you didn't know it. We've got to be aware of God as Christians. Samson had the opposite problem. Samson had the Holy Spirit upon him. Then the Holy Spirit departed and it said, Samson did not know it. Ooh, doesn't that give you chills? That the Spirit departed and Samson didn't know? The Spirit was there and Jacob didn't know. What he saw in the wilderness says, this was just a, a rock that I slept on. But it turns out this was actually the house of God. This was the gate of heaven. And that phrase, the gate of heaven, is another, you might say, one-up of the culture of the day. The name Babylon means gate of the gods. Bab meaning gate. Il is like El, meaning gods, right? Like Elohim. And then on is the Greek ending that we put on it. So they said, our city is the gate of the gods, and we build these beautiful towers where the gods come down to us, and we build these splendid temples. And Jacob's like, I stumbled into the house of God. I tripped over the gate to heaven because God was there all along. And what we learn from this, there is an invisible spiritual reality all around you 
that is so intertwined with the physical, you can miss it. Isn't that amazing? Because as I said, God is everywhere. God's presence is not bound to any one location. The Babylonians thought, he lives here. They all live here, actually. And every temple around the world, this is the house where our God lives. But the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 we, we know this verse, but I mean, consider how far ahead of its time this was. Every other culture thought, no, God lives here, and if you steal the idol, God doesn't live here anymore. But God's people can recognize, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. I could go up into space, I could go down into the magma and the core of the earth, and you're still there. I'm not going to outrun God. God is not bound by space. He made space. So while there are places like the burning bush, like the holy place in the temple, where God manifests his presence in a special way, like here at Bethel, God is not bound to those places. And any place where God manifests himself can be a holy place. If God's there, that's what makes it holy. It's not just a holy place because it's holy. Solomon even said that when they dedicated the temple. He's like, I built you a house, but you built the world. Are you going to live here? He says, the only thing that's going to make this any special is if your presence manifests here. God is everywhere. And God will manifest himself in special ways, like Jacob experienced here. Which reminds us that the world around us is more than what we see. We call him the immortal, invisible God. We feel as if, well, we can't see him, so how do you know he's there? What a foolish thing to say. He's God. He made everything. He's everywhere. You can't flee from his presence. Maybe you've tried to flee from his presence. You know, you know what? I gave that thing up when I became a Christian, but it's been a while, and I'm really, I want to try it again. And then you go back, and maybe for the first minute you're enjoying yourself, but then you go, this, this isn't even fun anymore. Going out and partying isn't fun anymore. Going out and sleeping with a bunch of people isn't fun anymore. What happened? Because God's presence is with you. You're trying to flee down into Sheol, but God's already there. And this is what Jacob is learning here. This was an awesome place. That could also be fearful place. You know, we kind of lose that because we're like, oh yeah, well, God's everywhere. It's like, yeah, but if God is here, that's a terrifying thing. Would you like to meet God after everything you did today? Yeah, God's here. Now, that is, of course, true, and I'm glad that we talked about it, but that can start to feel abstract for us as Christians, which is unfortunate. We're like, yeah, 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 God's everywhere. And there are people that probably don't even believe in God that will say a bunch of nice things like, well, God is everywhere, and God is with all his children. But what we see here, which is so cool, not to minimize anything that I just said, but I want to have a, a different emphasis here. There is more to the spiritual and the invisible than just the presence of God himself. That is what Jacob sees. What does he see? He sees angels. Whenever I heard my pastor start talking about angels, I'd always get excited. Because it's one of those mysterious, exciting things that I want to know more about. Angels. The Hebrew word there is malak. And it just means messenger. It's the same thing as the Greek word angelos, which is where we get the word angel from, which means messenger. There's a book of the Bible, Malachi, which is Malachi, which means my messenger. So the term can be neutral, but obviously these are not just, you know, people running the mail back and forth. These are angels as we understand them. And the Bible uses all kinds of terms to describe angels, and I've listed some of them. Angels is an obvious one. The sons of God is a very Old Testament one. Watchers, that's a real mysterious one in the book of Daniel. He calls them the watchers. Seraphim cherubim or be cherubim but cherub is fine cherubim are interesting because there's several places where it says that god rode on a cherub and we always think of those as those little wingling naked babies flying around heaven but it's like when god was angry and the the flame and the fire it says then then the lord rode on a cherub so like what is this like a a griffin thing is this like some you know monster that god rides seraphim means burning one and some of those seraphim are described as having four faces and four wings and shouting back and forth. And when they shout, the whole temple shakes. 
The stars, very often references to the stars in the Bible are in parallel with references to angels. Sometimes it just uses the generic term spirit. The heavenly host, what's a host? We've talked about it before. An army. So the heavenly host is the heavenly armies. Sometimes it just uses a term like messenger. And there's more. You could probably think of some more. But we're all talking about the same thing here. And there are some folks that want to get really pedantic about the different kinds of angels, way more than the Bible allows us. But I'm just going to give us a very simple definition of an angel. An angel is a spiritual being that executes the will of God. That seems pretty broad, I think, to encompass all of that. A spiritual beam being that does the will of God, in the same way as you are a physical being that is to do the will of God, right? And the bad ones are called demons. But I don't want to talk a whole lot about demons tonight. I want to talk about angels, the positive side. Because there's so much interesting stuff. But that being said, there's not a whole lot that we know about angels. There's not a lot of details given. And I'm going to, I'll read the warning that Paul gives later. But when folks start to get into a bunch of details about angels, we, we stray into weird very quickly. And, and we, we start to get all kinds of other books in addition to the scripture, to help shed light on what we know. I'm really not interested in any of that. I just want to know what the Bible says. There is a whole other error to avoid where folks don't believe in angels at all. And they say, God only used the, the word angel because he knew that the people that he was writing to believed in angels, and that was the only way he could explain it to them. To which I say, that's called a lie. That's God saying something that is not true. And why would he make up something that is more ridiculous than what you would call the simple truth. So the people, Jesus didn't cast demons out of those people. That, that was just how they understood it. It says demons, though. So I, I'm not really interested in somebody who wants to tell me that what it says is not what it means. So we're going to abandon that. We believe in angels. They're all over the Bible. You start doing a little study, and you realize, if I'm going to get rid of angels, we're going to really be in trouble. So let's, let's forget bad ideas. Let's talk about the good ones now. I'm going to give you 10 things that I was able to come up with that we know for sure about angels. And some of them are very generic and some of them might be more interesting. And I don't have a ton of cross-references here because if I were to list them all, it'd be way too much. But I'll try to refer to them generally and hopefully you go search these things out on your own, maybe with a good concordance. It would be a lot of fun. So what do we know about these messengers, these spiritual beings that execute the will of God? Number one, Angels attend the throne room of heaven. Every time we see a vision of heaven, there are lots of crazy-looking angels. Ezekiel has the, takes the cake for the strangest vision of angels. He saw that they had four faces and four wings, and their feet were like calves' feet. He said that they were shining and sparkling like polished bronze. He said that when they moved, it was like lightning and fire. And that the, the, the spirits of those angels were in wheels. Wheels within wheels that had eyes all over them. Now, all of you are making exactly the face I was hoping you'd make when I talked about that. Go read Ezekiel chapter 1. He says there were four angels and they could only move at right angles in one direction or the other. And whatever face was facing that way was the way that they would go. But isn't that odd that this was their body, but their spirit was in these wheels over here? I don't understand that. I'm just telling you what it says. And it says that when they flapped their wings or when they spoke, it was like the sound of an army shouting or like a mighty flood. Of course, we know Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe. And there were the seraphim, the burning ones. I've heard some people compare them to dragons. I think that might be pushing it a little far. But it does stress the differentness of the angels that we're reading about. The burning ones. John saw many angels in Revelation. He saw a bunch of demons that looked like frogs. He saw an angel that had a rainbow in his hair. Not really sure what that means either. He saw one that was so big, he had one foot that stood on the continent and one foot that went down into the ocean. So they're big, I guess. But we see that they're in attendance and worship of the Lord at all times. That God has these amazing, strange to our eyes creatures to attend him and worship him and do his will. And it seems like those angels in Ezekiel only existed to be the wheels of his chariot. That's called something that knows its place and is happy to do what God has called them to do, right? They worship the Lord at all times. It says that they will even return with him when he comes. 
Isn't that cool? That the angels are going to appear. So add to your mental image of Jesus returning with all the saints on the white horse, a bunch of four-faced angels. That's why it says that people's hearts will melt within them when they see that. So that's the first thing. They are the attendants of the throne room of heaven. Number two, this is a cool one. Angels perform heavenly reconnaissance. Angels are God's eyes and ears on the world. And we might say, well, God's everywhere. Can't he see in here? Yes, he can. He can also do all the things he asks you to do. This is the way he created the world. He's got people to do things in the physical, and he's got angels to do things in the spiritual. Job is the clearest example of this. That all it says, the B'nai Elohim, all the sons of God gathered to report to the Lord. And what's the question he asks of Satan? Where have you been? And he says, going to and fro and walking up and down. Basically, wherever I want, which is why Satan is such a rebel. But they're reporting to the Lord, what they've seen. Read to the book of Zechariah. I think it's in chapter one. There's a story where he has a vision of angels mounted on horses that were riding throughout the land to see if it was ready for the Lord to restore the children of Israel. Isn't that, that's a cool image that the Lord has horsemen, angelic horsemen riding throughout the world. Pretty cool. We saw in the few chapters before that there were the two angels that went to Sodom. They went to see if the land was really as wicked as the people said, and it absolutely was. In Revelation, the Lord sends out angels to seal and to search out God's people. They're the eyes and ears of God on the earth. And in fact, the book of Hebrews says that you should be cautious and polite when entertaining strangers because some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So don't be rude to the guy you're talking to in the store because the Bible says that might be an angel. You might say, well, that seems a little silly. That is what your Bible says. Now, there are some people that have had encounters with angels. I know Christians that I love and have no reason to doubt that will swear up and down that they've had encounters with angels before. My grandmother, before she was even saved, remembers that when she had scarlet fever as a little girl, that she was in the delirium and as she was fighting for her life, because, of course, it's such a deadly thing, that she saw angels standing around her bed watching over her, and she knew she was going to be okay. And she didn't get saved till way later, but she believed in angels. Heavenly reconnaissance. Number three, angels deliver heavenly messages. This makes sense. The name angel means messenger. We see them doing this a lot, and this seems to be what they're doing. Messengers going up and down, taking messages from earth up to heaven, taking messages from heaven down to the earth. And I, I, we could exhaust ourselves going through all the examples. That's usually what angels are doing in the Bible. Gabriel brought word to Daniel that the Lord was going to restore the people out of exile. An angel brought word to Joseph and to Mary when Jesus was going to be born. In fact, angels were there a lot in those stories, weren't they? They were the ones announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They also spoke to Zacharias in the temple, remember? And he didn't believe the angel. He had an argument with an angel. And the angel says, all right, fine. You're not going to be able to talk for a while. How's that for your mouth? All the other prophets had messages from angels. The book of Zechariah is full of angels. There was an angel that announced the resurrection to the women that came to the tomb, remember? This seems to be one of God's primary uses for his angels. Even the answers to prayers of his people are put into the hands of angels. And again, well, God can do anything. Yes, but God chooses to use instruments to accomplish his will. He uses you to accomplish his will. He uses angels to accomplish his will also. Number four, angels execute heavenly orders. So it's not just messages. They also have tasks to do. And there's a ton of these in the Bible. You see that the angel of death was sent to wipe out the firstborn of Egypt, right? And how's the angel going to know which house not to kill? The blood on the door. There was an angel sent to liberate Peter from prison. Remember that story? Where Peter thought he was in a dream and the angel had to kick him <laughs> to keep him going and the gates opened on their own. There were angels that were sent to deliver Jerusalem from a siege. It said an angel went into the Assyrian army and killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. There was an angel sent to warn Balaam against going to curse Israel. Remember that? The donkey could see the angel standing there with a big old sword. And the donkey's like, uh-uh, you can whip me all you want. I'm not messing with that thing. And then finally his eyes were open. And of course, there's a lot of symbolism there, huh? Your donkey could see what was right, but you couldn't. Of course, in the book of Revelation, angels are sent to deliver all the plagues that God is going to send. There was a spirit sent to harass Saul. And some people have debated, was that a demon that God sent to harass Saul? Or is that a 
good angel. It doesn't say. It just says a spirit was sent to harass him. Seems foolish for us to put a limit on what an angel could be asked to do. The Bible says they are mighty in power. And Jude, read through Jude again. He talks about people who are so uppity, they feel like they can tell angels what to do. He says, even Michael didn't do that. And he's Israel's angel. They're mighty in power. And when God sends them to do it, they're going to get it done. Number five, angels engage in spiritual warfare. This is the fun one, right? Most clearly seen again in the book of Daniel, where Gabriel says, I was coming to see you and the prince of Persia, prince as in principalities and powers that Paul talks about many times. The prince of Persia withstood me. So God had to send Michael, the prince of Israel, that would be the angel that watches over Israel. We'll talk about that in a minute. To fight against the prince of Persia so that the message could get through. And then he says, now I've got to go back and finish the fight. And then the prince of Greece is going to come and we're going to have to fight him too. It says that Michael disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. Doesn't tell us why, just says they did. Revelation tells us that there will be a war in heaven where Michael, the archangel, with all his angels, will fight against Satan, the dragon, and all of his angels, and that Satan will be cast down. That's why they're called the host of heaven, right? The armies of heaven. Remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane? Don't you think I could call down 12 what's of angels? Legions. What's a legion? Like a Roman legion. Soldiers with weapons. I could call down legions of angels to come and smoke these guys if I wanted. Don't you think those angels would have been chomping at the bit to do that too when they're watching? Like, yes, yes, that's a great idea, Jesus. We'll, we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll rip the earth wide open. They engage in spiritual warfare. No idea what that looks like, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? Number six, angels have heavenly authority. This is one that will, will require a much longer discussion, but some angels are commissioned to guard and to watch over nations. We already talked about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, Michael, the prince of Israel. There's a place in Deuteronomy where it says that God divided the nations according to the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, that those principalities and powers were established by the Lord. And then there's a psalm, I believe it's Psalm 84, maybe it's 82, but where the Lord rebukes these angelic rulers for taking power and glory for themselves. He said, I said you are like gods, right? I said you are gods, but you will die like men. The Lord's like, you thought you could steal my glory, and now you're not my minister to reflect the, the glory of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit down to these people. You'd rather them build temples to you. You'd rather mess with them and work out injustice and play all these weird little games. God goes, I'm coming for you. That's why Jesus would talk about hell prepared for the devil and his what? Angels. Revelation refers to an angel over the churches. That each church had an angel. Not quite sure how to break that down, but that's what it says. There was an angel to each of the churches. Yeah, and so the corruption of that authority was, seems to have been a key part of Satan's rebellion. And it ends up being the Lord saying, fine, you have all those nations. I'll take Abraham and we'll see who wins in the end. And there's a, as I said, this takes a, there's a whole cool thing we could talk about here, but we don't have time. The point is there are angels that have heavenly authority and that there are demonic forces that have usurped that authority like Satan has usurped the authority that should belong to the Lord. Number seven, angels watch over God's people. Bible calls them ministers. Psalm 91 verse 11 says that they guard us in all our ways. That's pretty neat, I think. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, after running through this long explanation of why Jesus is greater than angels, he says, what are angels but ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? Because why are y'all so hopped up on angels? They're there to serve you. They're there as your attendants and as your guards. In Acts, when Peter was in jail and he came, and remember Rhoda saw him at the door and slammed the door in his face and ran back inside, they said it must be Peter's angel. Not quite sure what that one means either. I don't know if they meant that Peter had died and become an angel. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that, so I'm inclined to think no. It could be that they thought this was Peter's guardian angel. I used to scoff at the idea of guardian angels. Oh, so ridiculous. But once you actually start reading your Bible, 
It's like, I don't know if I can say it for sure, but there's something going on here. It's pretty neat. There are instructions in Scripture that the Bible tells us to do for the sake of the angels. That God uses you as an example to the angels. That whole thing about women covering their hair refers to because of the angels. There's not a person on this earth that knows what that means, so don't let them tell you they do. But the point I'm trying to make is that angels are, are, are there. They're watching over God's people. And that's pretty exciting. Number eight, less of what they do and what they are. Angels have personality. This is an odd one. Angels have the capacity to sin. The Bible explicitly says that there were angels that sinned and did not keep their proper place. There are some that have been judged more harshly by God than others. There are some, remember we talked about this in Luke, who have been locked up in what the Bible calls the abyss. God's got a, God's got a demon prison. That's in the Bible. So don't, don't let people tell you, the Bible's boring. You're not reading it right. And it says that Jesus went and proclaimed victory to those spirits who were in prison. And it seems to be that those that are in that prison were the same that uh, gave birth to the Nephilim, which we talked about in Genesis chapter 6. Angels have names, names like Gabriel, name like, names like Michael. And then there are traditions that have the seven archangels, which are Uriel and Raphael and all the others. Not in the Bible, but why not? And they use personal pronouns. The angels are individuals. We read about angel food. The Bible says that the manna was the food of the angels. A lot of these things I'm just laying out there for you to think about later. Paul talks about the tongues of angels. We see that angels are able in some way to engage in sexuality, which is what gave rise to the Nephilim. But Jesus said that they are not married or given in marriage, which is why I think it was Peter said they did not keep their proper place. They should not have done that. It was the most reprehensible thing that ever happened on the earth, and it's why they're locked up in the abyss right now. And the horrible thing about the book of Revelation is there's a point where it says God is going to turn all those angels loose on the earth again. I don't want to be here. <laughs> no, thank you. But what we need to remember about angels, they are not human. I think we kind of got that when we heard the four faces, but my spirit is in these wheels over here, which is what's so amazing. They're another form of God's creation. They're spiritual beings. They have spiritual bodies and identities. And one amazing question to ponder all day long is, well, what kind of free will do angels have? Because I, I was taught my whole life, well, angels were allowed to make that one choice to either follow God or not, and then that was it. I have searched the scriptures. There is no verse that says that. Angels are serving the Lord because they desire to serve the Lord. And there are those that rebel. And Satan's rebellion, did it happen in one singular moment? Or is it only talked about in one singular moment? What does that say about the image of God? Is that something unique to humans? Or is that something that angels share? I don't know. I'm inclined to say no. But it is very interesting to see these angels acting like people. Not human, but people. They have personality, so they're not just these nameless forces that the Bible gave names to. That's the thing that people want to say. Say, well, yeah, God did something, and he said, you know, angels did it, because it would be easier for them to understand. It doesn't say that. Says, I am Gabriel, the archangel who stands before the Lord day and night. He almost got offended at, the, at Zacharias not listening to him, right? Do you know who I am, dude? <laughs> who are you, priest guy? I'm, I'm up in God's house. I was sitting down to talk to you. Number nine, <laughs> number nine, angels are outside of our salvation. Jesus did not die for angels because Jesus died in the body. Angels do not have physical bodies. And it says that Jesus has been lifted up high above them. And it says that he was seen by them. There's that amazing, I forget what epistle it is, where it's running through the gospel. And there's that line where it says that he was seen by angels. And we go, well, who cares? Apparently it's something significant. And we know that angels are not human beyond that and are outside of salvation because it says that we will be glorified above the angels. We will be glorified with Christ above them, and they will not. This is why Paul says that we're going to judge angels in 1 Corinthians. Another reason why I'm inclined to think there's more personality to these things than we think is what are we judging? We're judging, we're ruling over. The, the millennium is just a radical thing to talk about that there will be the immortal resurrected Christians who have been glorified with Christ while there are people living and dying on the earth who may or may not be worshiping the Lord. Angels are at work, but they're listening to us. Again, the Bible is not boring. 
And I'm not pretending to understand all these details. I'm just laying them out there and saying, this is what it says, and it should, it's good for us to think about them. It says that the angels desire to look into your salvation. Isn't that crazy? Paul runs through this list of all the, all the salvation that we have, and he says the angels want to understand it. Like, how is, how is that possible? And just like we have a hard time understanding angels, maybe they have a hard time understanding us too. So they have their souls in their body, not in like wheels over here. So how does that work? <laughs> and they're sitting there thinking like, oh, we're weird. Look at you guys. <laughs> Number 10, we already know this, but angels can go bad. And we call them demons. Now, it's important to know that in your Bible, very frequently, it does not use the term demon. It'll just say angel or wicked spirit. We have these catch-all terms, angel and demon, that are perfectly appropriate to use. It's just good to know that while you're reading, it'll say that Satan and his angels. Well, what, what angels? Fallen angels. When the power and the will of an angel is corrupted, terrible things can happen. Think about those angels, the one that can, has one foot on the land and one foot at the bottom of the ocean, or the one that can bind Satan. And what if one of those angels went bad? This is what Jude meant when he's like, just calm down. You don't know what you're messing with here. Every time somebody in the Bible saw an angel, they passed out or they freaked out. And the angel always had to say, don't be afraid. John in the book of Revelation even tried to worship a few angels. I'm like, get, get up. Don't do that. I'm just a minister. I'm a servant, just like you. Because they're so glorious and they're so powerful. So when an angel is corrupted and becomes a demon, it's not a funny, cute, cartoony thing. It's the most horrible thing you've ever heard of. Leads to idolatry. Paul talks about how behind idolatry is demon worship. Possession. Deception of people. Temptation to sin. So those angels that are working to minister to you are now working to bring you down and wreck your life with a hatred for humanity. I heard it said, and I love this illustration, that the heart of a demon is like the heart of a school shooter who despises humanity, doesn't think it's worth saving, doesn't think it's worth living for, and the kids that will even take their own life at the end just to demonstrate at the last moment, you know what, I don't even care. That's the kind of hatred and contempt for life that demons have. But you know what? Those things are just as subject to God's words as the angels are. When God speaks, the demons don't get to say, you can't tell me what to do. Remember the, the legion of demons that were living in that man in the tombs? A legion of demons. A lot of demons in one guy. It said that he, they would bind him up with chains and he'd rip the chains off. And he lived in the tombs, howling and screaming in the night. And Jesus shows up and the demons say, please don't hurt me. Please, I don't, want, I don't want to go to the abyss. Just can we go to the pigs? I'll live in a pig. I'll be real quiet. And I won't do anything ever again, Jesus. Jesus did not sit there arguing with these angels. That, that, that's TV. Y'all need to know that. And don't let the TV warp your, your understanding of this. You in Christ have the authority, Jesus said, over snakes and scorpions and over the powers of the enemy. So, oh, I, I got to find somebody more Christian than me to handle this demon. No, you don't. That's TV. We're, we're going to say the words a million times and we're going to set up all the proper symbols and we've got to find out the demon's name and we've got to find out what. You don't, Paul would say, would you be quiet and get out of her? Well, I can't just say that. Well, no, Jesus said some only come out through prayer and fasting. I'm not saying that you don't need to be prepared. But I'm saying you don't need to be scared either. Which is why Tyler Warner's choice is when Halloween season rolls around and there's a bunch of scary demon movies going out, I don't go see them. Why? Because I'm a pastor and I do plan to go do more mission trips and I know what kind of ministry we're going to engage in. And if I ever come across somebody that is actually demon-possessed, I don't need a lot of Hollywood movies running through my head. I'd rather have what the Word tells me, because all the Word tells me is rebuke them in the name of Jesus, and they'll leave. So those ten things, running through them again. Angels attend the throne room of heaven. They perform heavenly reconnaissance. They deliver heavenly messages. They execute heavenly orders. They engage in spiritual warfare. They have heavenly authority. They watch over God's people. They have personality. They're outside of our salvation, and they can go bad. That's what angels do. It's much more difficult to say more than this. And you kind of saw, I really wasn't drawing too many conclusions there. I'm just like, yeah, here's what it says. We know a few things, and it's okay to know those and to try to synthesize them, but Paul gives us a warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, and you've probably met people like this. 
He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You might replace the word worship and say, insisting on obsession with angels. The Bible does not tell us about the spiritual so that we can have our idle curiosity satisfied. And that we can start attributing like the light turning green to the angel that was in the light turning it on and things like that. And like, we're not responsible for anything. It's the demon that made me do it. And we spend far less time actually praying to the Lord and seeking his face and much more time thinking about the angels and how they might be at work. So Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, obsession with angels, going on in detail about visions. That's the thing that baffles me. I just basically gave you every detail the Bible gives us about angels. But there are folks that want to say, let me tell you all about it. And they say, now, if you look at this, it's also like these 10 books, and we're going to spend most of our time in these 10 books right here. Always goes that, well, I've had a vision, and this is what I saw. Paul's like, you're puffed up without reason, as in, you don't know what you're talking about. This is to bring you to the same place that Jacob was in here, that your world is not merely physical. There are, the Bible says, innumerable angels doing the work of God. And there are wicked demons resisting his will. The world is far bigger than you've ever imagined. There's a scientific thing that I do not pretend to understand fully, but you know, they talk about how the universe should be bigger. They call it dark matter. Like 85% of the world might be dark matter, they say. Because we look at how the world works together, and it shouldn't work. You would need way more world to make it work. And so there's all these tests and things to try to detect it and all that. And, you know, I'm not making any kind of theological statement, but I do think it's an interesting illustration that that's exactly the case. There is more to the world than you see. And the world shouldn't work if there is no supernatural realm. I'm not saying that angels are dark matter. Don't go tweet that, okay? There are people that believe that, and there's all kinds of crazy. Just leave it alone, all right? But what I want you to see, the world is bigger than what you've ever imagined. It's bigger than everything you've ever seen. And you are part of it in Christ. You're brought into that world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means our primary battle is spiritual. Your primary opponents, Christian, are demonic. And the minute you start labeling this group of people as the enemy, you've just written off a whole bunch of people whose souls you're supposed to be trying to save. The gospel is an effort to bring all things under the lordship of Christ. And angels are partners with us in that effort. Read the book of Acts. There's angels everywhere. They're going about the mission, and there's angels in and out, bringing visions and performing miracles and letting people know what's going on. That's still happening. Consider that. It's not a new dispensation or something. It's still going on. I could tell you stories from my trips to Nepal about people that would laugh at you if you say there's no such thing as angels and demons. I know a woman that was cursed by her idol because her daughter was a little girl and she ate the food before they had made the sacrifice. And she said her daughter became bent over and crippled immediately the second she did that. And so this woman got mad at the idol and cursed it and said, fine, I'm not offering any more sacrifices to you. And she said her face became twisted like a Bell's palsy kind of thing the second she said that. Until a Christian came to her village and prayed for her in Jesus' name and both her and her daughter were healed. And we say, well, that's just, just those people are, are ignorant and foolish. No, you're ignorant and foolish if you think that. Why are we so hesitant to believe stories from the mission field that line up exactly with what the Bible says? And every one of you in here has had an encounter like that or knows someone who has. But we want to be respectable or something. I don't know. You've got to live as if the spiritual is as real as the physical because it is. If you're only going to try to operate in this realm, what you can touch and see and smell and taste, you've already lost because that's not where your enemy lives. Your enemy is fighting in the spiritual, and that's where you need to be. And our generation, our nation, is a faithless generation. We don't believe in anything. 
outside of our own senses. We think that it's impossible for anything to exist outside of our senses. And then we say things like, well, then why don't we see more demonic possession and more? Because well, why would Satan mess that up? If he's got a whole culture spreading over the whole world that doesn't believe he exists, why is he going to mess that up? <laughs> They're doing the job for me. Lay low, fellas. I'm going to go have some fun, go over to Africa or somewhere. But when we're in the United States, you don't do anything. As Jacob said when he saw this, he said, this is an awesome place. The angels of heaven ascending and descending. He was aware and frightened and, and his whole heart was changed when he was made aware of both worlds. Another layer of reality that's right there. I love it when Elisha prayed for his servant and he said, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see it. And he saw it and he saw chariots, flaming chariots of angels surrounding the city. <laughs> what do you think that was like? Open his eyes so he can see it. And he went, oh! <laughs> Elisha, is this what you see all the time? Well, not all the time, but you know, enough times that I've kind of started to just go with it. You are called to participate and engage in that same ministry and that same fight through prayer and through the Holy Spirit. So what did Jacob do? Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. You could read memorial pillar. And poured oil on the top of it, anointing it, sanctifying it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob erects the stone. It means it probably was a big stone. Don't think like a little, little thing. This is a big thing, like a memorial pillar. Think like Stonehenge, something more like that. And he anoints it with oil as... A marker that something holy happened here. And I think that what this is trying to say, that there, the city of Luz was not built yet. When it was built, it was first be called Luz because he's sleeping on rocks. It doesn't seem like there was anywhere else for him to stay. But later it would be called Bethel, which means house of God. Beth or Bayat means house and El, of course, means God. Now these memorial stones are interesting because later on Israel is going to start to worship the stones instead of using them as memorials. They had a tendency to do that. We as people do that. It's a great reminder, but we start to worship it. Communion. It's a great reminder, and then we start to worship it. The bronze serpent in the wilderness. The Lord said, fine, break the thing. If you're going to bow down to it, smash it. Same thing with these memorial stones. The Lord was having them set them up when they first went into the promised land. Later on, he says, knock those things over, because you're worshiping them. The high places would have had stones like this. But Jacob did this at the time. It was absolutely the right thing to do, marking the occasion where God met him. And he says, God, if you'll be with me and bless me and do all that you say, return me home, then I'll serve you. I'll build you a house of worship here, and I'm going to tithe too. He didn't have anything yet. So that tithe thing was an empty promise at the, at the moment. Well, like he had a big sack full of gold. He says, but whatever I do get, one-tenth of it goes to you. And he would do this. We're going to see him build the house of worship later. And this would be, unfortunately, where the northern kingdom, when the kingdom split, all the people were still going to Jerusalem to worship. So Jeroboam the king says, how about we build a new temple at Bethel? Because Bethel is even older than Jerusalem, so we'll have a better temple. And he set up two golden calves. It's like, what's better than one golden calf? Two golden calves. And they began to worship the Lord, so to speak, there. And it was a terrible thing. The prophets would denounce it, especially the minor prophets, as Beth Avon. Avon means emptiness or nothing or trouble would be another way to translate it. So they would not call it the house of God. They call it, it is the house of trouble, house of nothing, house of meaninglessness until it was destroyed when Assyria came into the land. But for now, it's a sign that Jacob is going to serve the Lord. And I think you can kind of see God made a good choice here. Although Jacob is, has not been fixed yet. He's, he knows he's going to serve the Lord, but he's going to have a very strange way of going about it when he gets to Laban's house. But sometimes that's all that God wants. He wants that commitment first, and then we'll work out the rest, yeah? It's going to take him a long time to get it together, but for now, he's committed. And that's what we need to hear, too. Be committed to the Lord, the one that fills all things. When you recognize that this is true, that 
there is something spiritual going on around you all the time, that just makes your life so much more amazing, doesn't it? The possibility of that breaking in at any time. Because God is with you. In John 1.51, Jesus is talking to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel sees him and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus is like, Really? I, I told you where you were reading, and you already think that I'm the Lord? That's great, but you're going to see better stuff than that. He says, In fact, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Bethel was just a place. Those temples that they built, they were just places. Jesus Christ is the mediator. Heaven and earth are connected in Jesus Christ. No one else is going to ascend to heaven except for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And no one else has come out of heaven to the earth except Jesus. And you know what 1 Corinthians 6 says? You are a temple of his Holy Spirit. So say, where's the hot spot where we can find out where the gateway to heaven is? It's in you. Because the Lord has made you his temple. The dwelling place of God is with his people. And the Spirit of Christ lives inside you. Which means that you don't have to go anywhere to be present at the gateway to heaven. Did, you, did we catch that? That's a huge deal. You say, well, what's, what's the doorway? You're the doorway, Christian. You're the one that God wants to use to connect these two things together, heaven and earth, to meet one another. Paul said, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Well, you're just so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's a nice cop out. But Paul tells us that we look to the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This world's going to burn. This world is going to burn up in a fervent heat. But the eternal things are going to last forever. Your soul, the Lord himself, the angels that he's going to preserve. Don't live for this life alone. Know that there's more to it and that God is there. If you want to walk on the path and find what your life needs to be like Jacob did, you've got to have an encounter with God and recognize that there's more to the world than what you see. 